Tech Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or Friday evenings on RTE Radio. Our show this week is kindly brought to you by Aon and we'll be chatting with their Head of Catastrophe Insight later. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is show number 916. I'm joined as always by our Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, you did the interview with, wow, what a job title, Head of Catastrophe Insight. Was it good? Uh, yeah, it was really good. And, you, you you know, you learn an awful lot about information and where it comes from and whether some of it is reliable and whether a lot of it is unreliable on purpose. We've got that in about 10 minutes. But first, speaking of information, earnings report. This is all I see in the, in the business news and Meta giving out results and Apple have got some coming and uh, God knows who else. Uh, what are the headlines? Yeah, it's results season. Um, as we know, last week, Netflix didn't do so well. Uh, I think Facebook are doing OK. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Big headline is Google share price is down 4% uh, off the back of the latest announcements. And we're going to see a trend in the latest uh, round of results, I think. Uh, we're going to see people complain an awful lot about the supply chain problem about the inflation problem in the States because, you know, they're, they're all US-based and also the effect of the conflict on Ukraine because when it comes to uh, the big service providers, specifically when you're thinking of, you know, Google and Facebook where they've had a massive problem with misinformation, there's got to be a lot of uh, um, a lot of moderation problems, mm. a lot of product development issues to be sorted out, and that's all going to cost money. So I think it's going to be a stressful quarter. We'll know a little more uh, over the next week or so when when all the numbers are in. But those are the three big things that are, that are going to affect things. And already uh, Netflix has felt a, a bit of a rumble, as we talked about last week, and sim- similarly with Alphabet this week. Now, uh, speaking of these large companies, the big, big story really is Twitter and Elon Musk. A steal, a steal at 44.1 billion for the whole thing. First and final offer. That's it. I find the whole thing fascinating. Netflix's price, I think this time last year, was like $700 a share. Now it's 180 Netflix price two weeks ago was, what, $350 a share? It's literally fallen off a cliff. Mm. And then the same with Twitter. One guy just mm. goes there and he says, you know what, I think I'm going to buy Twitter because I think I can do it better. And what fascinates yeah. me about this is that he's offered everybody $54 a share or whatever it is, okay? Uh, I think the current price yeah, is somewhere 20. around 48 Yeah. And yeah. it's going down. <laughs> <laughs> you would think, hang well, on a minute, you know if, I buy this, if I buy this share at $48 and he's going to give me $54 when the deal goes through, well, then I'm making $6 a share. I'm in. But no, sure. Go no, it. it's going the opposite way. It's going down because I don't think people believe that the deal will actually go through. Uh, there's an element to that. I mean, he is a pretty erratic character. Uh, I tell you some very good reasons for the deal to not go through is because people in Tesla and SpaceX are not happy. The uh, share price on Tesla is uh, taking a serious hit. I think the company's valuation is down 168 million mm-hmm. since uh, since the Twitter announcement. Mm-hmm. So they're taking a huge hit. And you know, Musk is such a an iconic CEO that okay, he's the man who made space travel cool again. He's the man who made electric vehicles cool. 
how much how much attention is he actually going to devote to Twitter? You know, is this a, a billionaire's plaything? I think so. Well, it's a it's a huge plaything uh, for that particular billionaire. I think it is very much a personal project for him. And I think people know this. Um, Twitter has never really made money. Twitter is never one of these that has been like, you know, wow, they they turned over X billion last year. They're, they're just a colossus tank yeah, of money like no, Apple and Facebook. It's never been like that. No, no, it's managed debt. And basically, if you're if they have a, a quarter where they're not just bobbling along, stagnating, then it's worth it's it's newsworthy. Mm-hmm. So no, not a big money spinner. Uh, and this is partly why Musk has taken it over. He said, oh, there's so much potential in this company. It's not being done right. And I could I could make it better and all this sort of stuff. But I mean, we all know that this is as much about his personal values as anything. I mean, he put out a, um, uh, a Twitter poll on the 25th of March and he asked his, his what, 82 million followers? Um, does does Twitter adhere to its mission statement of supporting free speech? And 70% of people said no. 70% of his followers agreed with him. Think about that, mm-hmm. um, which I think personally was the, was the trigger for all this nonsense. Um, so, I mean, Musk has said he's a free speech absolutist. It's like, say what you want. I don't care. That's not going to wash over in Europe. Um, if you think that free speech absolutism means you get to spew hate speech, um, that's not going to go down well over here. Well, not, not never, mind, never mind about what Musk will and will not allow. The problem for all of these social media people is that there are laws that they have to adhere to and the laws are all different in different areas. Yes, they are. Nightmare. And as we've talked about many of the time, uh, Section 230 is, is the essential uh, law in states that separates the idea of a platform from a publisher passed in the mid-90s, a very different time. Uh, what we're seeing in Europe, and we'll talk about that a little bit, is the complete opposite. It's the recognition that platforms, uh, um, they, they they share an awful mm. lot more with publishers than they would like to admit. Um, and moderation is expensive, so naturally enough social networks go, well, we don't really want to invest in that. Grand. We'll see what he does yeah. with it. My, my, my favourite uh, comment during the week, I can't remember who said it, but they said uh, influencers are on TikTok. World leaders are on Twitter. That's interesting. I thought it was do good. You, do you know who's on Facebook? Uh, who's on Facebook? Your grandparents. Oh, your grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly ain't me, that's for sure. Uh, now, about listen, how the government is messing you about. Uh, my favourite, well, sorry, my, I say my favourite people because they do do some good stuff. The European Union, the EU, mm. uh, yeah. have agreed a Digital Services Act. And I think that the tweet that went out from the, the person who negotiated with the EU just summed it up perfectly. Do you remember what she said? Uh, let's see. Basic. Oh, sort of the mission statement. What's, that was it. What's I'm illegal offline, offline will be illegal online. online. How very simple. simple. Very, very simple in one sentence. So that, so that's it. And Google and Facebook and, 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 and they've all signed up to this. Um, there are some big fines in place, so, which we're used to as X percent of uh, world turnover. But what is the ultimate thing that could happen to them if they don't play ball? Oh, if they don't play ball. Well, if we look at the experience of multinationals in the States, and I'm thinking Huawei, uh, for various reasons that we've covered uh, in the past, ultimately they were banned from doing business in the States. So the ultimate thing that the EU is holding over these people is that they could be banned from trading in the EU. Perfect. No more Facebook in the EU. 
Well, can you imagine how well our collective mental health would benefit? (laughs) By that, you're inferring you are on Facebook with your grandparents. Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, you know, for as much value as I do extract from social networks, you do have to look at the net effect of these things. I mean, if you've got people getting upset over body image from Instagram, if you've got people being fed misinformation uh, on Facebook over vaccines and elections Mm. um, and just, you know, Twitter being an absolute nightmare of dogpiling and celebrity worship, um, I think anything that brings these guys in, into line is a great idea. And big tech has spent a lot of money lobbying Europe over this. I think mm. in the last year, the collective bill was like 27 million euro. Um, Apple was one of the big spenders on this, which I was a little bit surprised about. Mm. Um But uh, also uh, just an important little um, differentiation between the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. Um, They both complement each other. The Digital Markets Act is all about getting the infrastructure and the physical infrastructure and the tax uh, regimes in place to to treat Europe as a single market. Basically exactly what we do offline. Okay. Uh, Whereas the Digital Services Act is about helping people feel safe when they use the market. That's basically what it's there to do. So the Digital Markets Act, it covers the money end of things. And then the Digital Services Act just covers the the user. Yeah. So it looks at things like basic standards of broadband and making sure everybody has access to Mm. broadband. Um, That's only one element of what they Mm. do. But um, that's, that's kind of the differentiation between them. Now, let's go from the EU trying to make everything right and the world perfect to the exact opposite of that, cyber warfare. Yeah, and we we had a really good discussion with uh, Brian Honan from BH Consulting a couple of weeks ago uh, about uh, cyber warfare, particularly in the age of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Mm. Uh, And we're starting to see some some trends uh, occur. Now, we are seeing a a marked increase in the number of distributed denial-of-service attacks out there. I think they're up like 25%. Um, and this works both ways. This is you know, like, we know how a DDoS attack works. It's basically you flood a website with traffic so it becomes unusable. Uh, Anonymous have been doing it to websites in Russia. Um, Russia has been trying to do it to um, banking websites, etc., based out of Ukraine uh, with little to no effect because the likes of Google have been stepping in and making, making facilities available mm-hmm. to keep these websites online. Uh, we've also seen um, Russian ransomware groups like Conti uh, rally together and go, okay, we are pro-Russia and that's it. And they're moving their shift from purely uh, commercial to political ends as well, because they know that their uh, ransomware has been particularly effective, as we know here over the, the HSE. So they're targeting a uh, sort of infrastructure uh, in Ukraine, sort of basically sending infected emails to power mm. companies, TV stations, all this sort of thing. Mm. And they're using uh, a malware called Whispergate, uh, which is um, basically, you know, it's it's kind of, uh, how would you say, vandalism. But they also use a, a, a wiper um, malware as well, which basically, as we're familiar with ransomware, it's like, you know, pay us and we'll unlock your computer mm. or pay us uh, or we'll, we'll, you know, your computer will be locked and we'll leak your data. Mm. Um, the wiper uh, malware that was sent out to Ukrainian systems basically just wipes your data straight away. No negotiation. As soon as it's open, you're gone. 
So that's, that's a warning for us because, I mean, we're all kind of like a, into our tech in, in various different levels, but we should absolutely make sure that our backups, and here's the thing, actually, because I do the backups, this is going to be my job for the weekend. I got to make sure that I can back up from my backups or I can restore from my backups is what I should say. Because it's yeah. the number one mistake you keep hearing about. People are doing backups. That's fine. And then when disaster strikes, the backup doesn't work. They can't restore it. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's what yeah. I, uh, I might do. I'll tell you one thing that I have been doing uh, since the start of the year is I have been keeping, um, I mean, I've got a cloud backup of everything, but I've also been keeping um, a USB drive not connected to the computer, which I will update once a week or so. Because if those guys get in on your system, whatever they do on your computer will also be replicated in the cloud. Right. So that if they're going to destroy a file on your computer, well, then it's going to be destroyed on that's the cloud true. as well. Doesn't it make sense? Yeah, that's you know? true. You, so, if you use Dropbox or whatever, yeah. Exactly. So just having uh, something that is not connected to your system is uh, is well worth doing. Anyway, there we go. Listen, that's it. The uh, news for this week. Now, thank you as always for keeping us up to date. Remember, of course, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates and daily newsletters at our website, techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Because of climate change, we often hear about the hottest summers and the coldest winters since records began. But how far do the records go back and how reliable are they? And can we use that past experience to predict severe weather events in the future. Steve Bowen is the Head of Catastrophe Insight at Aon, and he talked to Niall Kitson about using data science for disaster prediction. Steve, as Head of Catastrophe Insights, I mean, this sounds like a role that's very much a, a sign of the times, or is this something Aon has been doing quite a while and it's, it's only now that we're finding out about it? Yeah, so it, it's a role that I've been in for... I would say officially around a decade. I've been at Aon for 15 years. Uh, the work that I'm doing hasn't necessarily changed. We've always been looking at various natural hazard risk around the world. But within the last decade or so, especially as the insurance industry and a lot of other private sector entities have really put much more emphasis around climate change uh, and how it's tied into all these different types of, of lines of businesses, uh, that it became a bit more obvious that we needed to have a bit of a punchy title uh, for the team. And so Catastrophe Insight was born. And, uh, you know, we've, we've really uh, put a lot of emphasis, again, around climate change and how it's tying into socioeconomics, how it's tying into things like transition risk and other types of non-physical risk around the world to really kind of help people uh, get a very, uh, you know, robust feel of, of how various types of risk is evolving and uh, whether we can do that quantitatively or qualitatively you know, there's a lot of different things at our disposal to help people along in their journey and trying to help mitigate risk. So uh, it, it, it's not brand new. It's something that's been around for a little while, but certainly it's getting more and more attention, uh, not just because it's kind of a cool name, but also because, you know, the, the work that we're doing. And, uh, you know, it, it certainly uh, feels like it's, it's more, more important by the day. You've gone sort of straight to the the nub of the issue from a, a tech perspective in mentioning the sorts of data that you deal with, um, qualitative and quantitative data. So what kind of data sources are you working with in your job at the moment? Sure. So really, the, the foundationally, a lot of our work is based on historical loss data. And we have something called the Catastrophe Insight Database that's 
um, I started putting together around you know 10, 11, 12 years ago, where we've really tried to capture a true historical view of, natu- of global natural disaster events going back uh, really to the start of the, the 20th century. Um, of course, we know that data availability is certainly a challenge in some parts of the world. So we've really done a deep dive in this ongoing reanalysis research project to really try to fill in a lot of data gaps which exist, because that really does help us establish a baseline of what losses looked like before and what they look like now and try to be helping uh, people get a better sense of how, why, and where risk may be evolving. Uh, because we know climate change, for instance, is having a, a real effect today on how weather events are behaving. But then we also have to tie in the other socioeconomic factors of where people are moving, how they're living in terms of building construction and things like that. And all of that is directly tied to overall risk. Uh, and that can really help pinpoint where and why losses uh, are continuing to go up. Uh, and also, we can use that data to help people get a better sense of what can be done to try to help mitigate and, and limit uh, potential losses as well. So, so the, foundationally for the work that we're doing in the insurance industry, the, the loss data itself is a really important piece of all of that. But then, of course, we're also looking at other uh, hazard data, you know, old weather data, old you know, earthquake data, basically anything from a natural peril. Um, that that's a really important set of uh, tools that we use to to use in concert with the lost data as well, and then we're of course looking at other other data around you know uh, population trends, housing trends, uh, you know GDP, wealth, all these other uh, important factors which are really sort of help fill in more of those details to get a better sense of risk. So you know I, I like to joke that that our team is essentially. Uh, one big data vacuum. We're always trying to to find something else, some type of metric that may be useful for us to help uh, communicate levels of risk, not just internally to our colleagues, but of course to our clients, uh, governmental bodies, even even international media, and trying to help you know communicate risk at, at a more layman level. Uh, so data is certainly foundational, and, and like I said, it's it's a whole bunch of different things that that we're using to to try to get a better handle on what the risk is looking like today and perhaps in the future. Working with so many disparate sources of data uh, from official records all the way down to media reports, uh, it sort of raises the interesting issue of the politics of data as well. Have you found cases where maybe a country doesn't want people to know that they they had a bad winter in 1921 or that, you know, their the supply of water was badly mismanaged during World War II? Have you come across any sort of politicization of information that way? Yeah, that, that's a huge challenge. And frankly, uh, the whole team has gotten a bit of a history lesson because we you mentioned World War II, for instance, and that's a great example where there's actually huge gaps, years of gaps in terms of data availability because of things like World War II, where no one was really keeping any types of official records because of what was happening. So, you know, we run into those challenges and when we, we do present it, we have to be transparent and say, look, there are definitely some periods in time where whether it's geopolitical, whether it's, you know, just foundationally how governments are uh, trying to control what data is made available, that there may end up being some types of gaps that exist. Uh, But believe it or not, a country like China, for instance, they actually do have a pretty robust set of data that gets released. Um, You know, we, we obviously 
uh, have to depend on on the government in terms of how they're doing the data cleaning and, and everything else to ensure that it's uh, you know highest quality. But um, you know they do, a, for example, a pretty good job of, of making such such information available. But um, in, in terms of the biggest challenges, I would say places uh, in Africa, uh, Latin America, some parts of Southeast Asia, where countries. Um, either are collecting data and they don't make it available, but in, in most cases, there's just not a, any real official uh, governmental agency or body that's that's actually collecting data and putting it into some type of uh, database. Um, so it, it does create some challenges in trying to get a, a fully robust view. Uh, sometimes we have to be creative in, in events that we do have data for, and we try to do historical comparisons to see what conditions look like. Uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, but then also the physical hazard side as well to try to come up with, you know, a best case estimate of what what a loss might be. Uh, but there's a whole lot of different complex pieces that are that are put into place to try to come up with a with an educated uh, guess. And we certainly try to be conservative when we're doing these types of, of uh, you know loss estimates in, in the case where data may not be available. Because it's much easier to revise upward than it is to start high and come down. So we, we, we definitely try to be uh, pretty reasonable in terms of how we're, we're doing the analysis. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what you're bringing up is a really interesting question. It's one that we definitely are, are dealing with almost on a daily basis. Um, but we have to do it on an almost country by country basis, just depending on, on how these uh, you know, various countries are actually handling data and whether there's been regime changes throughout the years, social inflation Sometimes currency changes uh, throughout the, the period in history. So uh, it, it's, it's very fascinating, but it's also pretty challenging work. Moving on from sort of the, the input element, which I suppose is a, a debate that you can have all day, especially given uh, between sensor tech, uh, so many more data points for any particular uh, event in time. Once you have that data uh, collated, how do you actually use it? Do you actually break up weather events into different types or do you, do you look at things through the lens of everything being a catastrophe? Like what sort of modeling are you using at the moment? Yeah, so it's basically a two-part question. So we we really do use the data initially to break it down by peril, and then we can break it down more regionally, whether that's you know say Europe or the United States or you know uh, Australia, you know places like that, or we can try to get even more granular and get down to a state uh, state level if possible if we're trying to really kind of pinpoint areas where risk may be evolving and tying all those different data pieces uh, together that I, I referenced before. But in terms of modeling, you know, the, this data is really foundational for something that's really important in the insurance industry, which is called catastrophe modeling, where you're basically taking together a whole bunch of different hazard data. You have an individual model for a specific peril, so say tropical cyclone, for instance, uh, that's really looking at, um, you know, how the, how the, uh, the peril tends to behave in terms of wind speed, for instance. And so you're taking an individual event scenario, you're, you're taking insurance portfolios, you're taking in all these you know, different types of metrics, like uh, how a home is constructed, the type of material that's used, when it was built, uh, whether there are building code enforcements that are there, all these different types of standards, and then you have the different you know, insurance policy details. So really this whole mishmash of a whole bunch of different types of things that all get blended together 
And then you have a financial engine behind it. And then that puts out uh, a financial number in terms of what that scenario looks like. So that is really important. And then when you're trying to do validation or calibration of these models, you then will return to a group like ours, which has the historical data to be able to say, okay, the model output is this. What does that look like compared to what the actual incurred loss was and what the footprint looked like and footprint meaning, you know, where the, the you know, the wind speeds were actually registered over land. Uh, and then we can kind of help them make additional tweaks to the model to make sure that it's, uh, you know, putting out, um, you know, reasonable sets of output that can be used for, for, for a client portfolio. So, um, that's just one area. There's so many different types of modeling that's currently in place that's being used by different different types of groups. So uh, it's a pretty pretty interesting time right now as technology continues to move forward. Yes, indeed, the technology is moving forward so quickly, uh, particularly in the area of AI, so much so that an awful lot of companies are finding they've got the great natural resources, if you will, but not necessarily the expertise or the infrastructure to really get the most out of them. Uh, how important is it to a company like Aon to have sort of connections with startups, with uh, universities to uh, fully develop uh, more tools that can help interpret, collate uh, the data that you need? Well, it's critically important. I mean, there's there's no question about it that as an insurance company, we, of course, have access to a tremendous amount of data, uh, you know, increasingly hiring folks from either academia or, the, or uh, other parts of the public sector, which you know are, are specific in terms of what their background capabilities are. I mean, myself, I'm a meteorologist. You know, I, n- I never thought I'd be working uh, in the insurance industry, but especially since I started off in television uh, to start off my career, um, you know, coming out of college. Uh, but it really makes a lot of sense. The industry is really trying to get a, a really broad swath of different backgrounds to, to identify ways to uh, really identify risk and try to come up with ways to mitigate risk. So, um, you know, AI is certainly one thing that's critically important. We're not necessarily doing too much model development right now that introduces AI, but we are, as you referenced, partnering with outside organizations, which are really going deep in terms of, uh, you know, modern age tech, which is, is just implementing more of the AI neural network uh, machine learning type of uh, um, you know, methodologies to really kind of help pinpoint and specify specific products, which are uh, becoming very useful. Uh, we're, we're also working with academic partners. We have a whole host of, of academic relationships right now who are, in fact, doing some of this integration of modeling on their own side. And then we are essentially adopting a lot of that work or working collaboratively in terms of what parameters are being fed into the models uh, that are being developed so that that output that we're receiving makes sense. And then, of course, we can on both sides actively use the results for, for different reasons. Um, but uh, but it's an exciting time. I mean, it's it's really emerging. It's really moving very quickly. Um, I would say in the last five to 10 years, especially, there's just been a real push forward around uh, coming up with climate solutions, we continue to see almost on a daily basis what climate change looks like from a societal standpoint. Uh, and there's never been a more urgent time than today to really try to come up with ways to better identify the, le- the levels of risk uh, and help people do things to really try to limit potential impacts and, of course, try to save uh, save lives on top of it. 
Yeah, certainly. Uh, from one perspective, it's sort of you've got this wonderful socio-cultural and uh, geographical history assembled, uh, but you'll also be looking towards not just developing insights for the company, but tracking the impact of outputs as well. I imagine you're you're quite looking forward to seeing how global initiatives, for ex- example, are sort of uh, prolonging our lifespan, if you will, or or mitigating the effects of climate change. Are these also the sort of outputs that you're looking for in your data? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the big uh, changes, I would say, in terms of the mindset of a lot of folks is around climate change. The, The primary focus has really been around physical risk, but what we've certainly seen uh, in the last few years, especially in the age of COVID, is uh, all these non-physical risks that are occurring that are having very real socioeconomic uh, or, or societal, excuse me, impacts on people's lives. And that's the secondary and tertiary effects, things like supply chain uh, disruption, impacts to infrastructure, which are really uh, severely limiting uh, the ability of some sectors to be able to do their jobs and, and in most cases be able to get a delivered product into the hands of the end consumer. So, you know, that's really caused a massive change in terms of how we're viewing climate risk and that, you know, it may not just necessarily be the one part of the world that's been directly affected by a disaster uh, being affected. That In fact, that one area and whether there's some type of manufacturing facility, for example, that may lead to these cascading effects in areas all around the world. Uh, and, and as we've seen, there are many areas that have been affected where uh, there have been uh, effects, and that's you know compounded change, you know challenges around things like the microchip shortage. Um, so you know we have to think more broadly around what climate risk looks like, and it's not just uh, the areas that are being affected. That all these other uh, you know interconnected uh, things are are all really important and, and really affecting people around the world. So uh, it, it's certainly something that uh, technology is going to be really crucially dependent upon. to to try to come up with ways to make sure we're identifying where there may may be some links in the chain to uh, try to shore those up and and make sure that we have a much clearer view and start to have a better idea of how to plan. And that was Steve Bowen from Aon chatting with Niall Kitchen. If you'd like to find out more about what they do, you can visit aon.com and that website address in the show notes on your player right now. That's it for our show this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with regular updates and newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie. And of course, you can hear our show every Friday online or with RTE Radio 1 Extra on Friday evenings. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, after Niall Kitchen, have a fabulous long weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.